All right, let me pray. Father, we come to you and we don't want to stand over your word, but Lord, we want to submit to it and stand under it. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, you would uh, use uh, this passage uh, to uh, at least partially cure our unbelief. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, in my view, uh, there are basically four kinds of Christmas songs. Uh, the first kind are uh, the Christmas hymns, the kinds uh, that we will sing uh, tonight. Most of them are written between the 15 and 1800s. There are songs like, you, can, you guys can help me sing them. Silent night, holy night. Oh. <laughs> um, you know, God, rest ye merry gentlemen. I don't know any more than that. It's just the words of the title. And then I would slack off. Uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, you know, Christmas hymns. These are songs that are about Jesus. That's the first kind. The second kind, there's the, the Golden Age Christmas carols. They're the kinds that your grandparents like, kinds your parents like, uh, the kinds that you hate to admit, the kind that you like. It's, it's the Nat King Cole Christmas album. Uh, songs like Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, you know. Uh, White Christmas, what a good one. Uh, Silver Bells. It's a great Mike Tyson meme about silver bells, by the way. Um, uh, there, there's the fun traditional songs. Uh, the third kind, these are kind of wintry, Santa Clausy. They're usually playing on the commercial side of what Christmas is. There's Santa, uh, or there's uh, uh, Santa Claus is coming to town, Rudolph, Frosty, uh, and my favorite, I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. You know, those are the, just the fun ones, the traditional ones. Uh, and the last kind of the romantic Christmas songs. Uh, there's the real seductive one, Santa Baby. You know, you'd think that was um, fairly recent. <laughs> that's an old one. I, I don't know how that went over back in the day, but that thing's been playing for a long time. Uh, and then, you, you know, really any pop star puts out kind of the obligatory Christmas album. They're just trying to make money because they only have to probably write one fresh song and the rest of them they can just copy, you know, all these other ones. Uh, and all of them have been trying to live up to the queen of Christmas music, Mariah. All I want for Christmas is you, you know. I'm not going to sing that one. Um, these are the romantic Christmas songs. That's the fourth kind. And then as much as these songs really get you bopping and reminiscing, you put on 94.5, now they start November 1st. Uh, they're, they're, you're reminiscing of days of yore. I mean, even the Mariah Carey, I mean, it takes me back to high school so fast. I mean, it's just instantly, because that's when it came out for me. For some of you, you aren't alive yet. Uh, but high school was Mariah for me. And it makes me think of all things that were going on. You know, I think of my grandparents. I think of when I sing a lot, especially these, these Christmas hymns. I think it's riding around in uh, the Ford Aerostar with my mom uh, listening to uh, Nat King Cole. I think about just being a child. But it makes me sad because it makes me think about how the family picture looks different than all these memories I have with these songs. Other songs that remind you of not having a special someone, and that makes you sad. Then you get all these Christmas cards, and you see pictures on all the social media outlets of people, of those who seemingly have everyone that love them in their life, and that makes you sad. Why? It's because you're lonely. And Christmas just seems to come along towards the end of the calendar year and rub your loneliness in your face. Yet loneliness is much more than a Christmas thing, isn't it? I mean, it's an everyday thing for many of us. 
I mean, the share of adults in the U.S. who live alone has nearly doubled in the last 50 years. In fact, the more urban your context, the more likely you are to live alone. Nearly half or over half of most metropolitan cities, Lexington being one of them, are made up of single-person households. Now, some, some of them and some of you, you've chosen to live alone, and that's fine, but many of us didn't. And the fact that we live alone harkens back to something very painful for us, something like a divorce or a death or the inability to find someone. So if that's you, and if you're lonely this Christmas, what should you do? Well, one website I found, uh, just Googling, it said that offered three solutions. It said, just breathe, keep a routine, know what you can control. But these pieces of advice don't change the basic problem because you're still lonely. You're still alone. But I've got good news. I've got a picture for you this morning that you can hold on to if you're lonely. Uh, we've looked at two other pictures the last couple of weeks during this Advent season that we've been able to put in the lockets of our hearts. And they're from this book of Revelation, this vision of what the second coming of Jesus will be like. And this book, Revelation, is meant to engage our imagination so that we might hold on to hope in the midst of trial and pain. The first picture was of a coming king. The second picture was of the coming reunion. And this third picture is from the first half of Revelation 19, the coming wedding. So let's read verses 1 to 10 together. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her blood of his servants. Once more they cried, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seems to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The word of the Lord. So there's three figures. I'm sure you caught them. The first one's in verse 2. It's the prostitute. And the second and third figures are both in, in verse 7. You have the lamb and the bride. So I want to look at each one of them. Let's look at the prostitute first, verse 2. Now, if you went back to chapter 18, uh, the one right before what we read, what you'll see is a lot of cruelty. You'll see a lot of violence. You'll see a lot of injustice. And all of that is embodied in the nation of Babylon in chapter 18. 
But the metaphor switches when you get to 19, and it switches to the prostitute. And so now the prostitute is what stands for all that's wrong in the world, namely sin. And so from that angle, sin is pictured as adultery. And this image of sin is pervasive in the Bible. It's not to get us to sit up straight and pay attention because you just said prostitute in church. That's not what John's trying to do. He's not trying to do a bait and switch here. Rather, this is what God uses to tell us about our sin because it tells us how he wants us to relate to him. See, he doesn't merely want to relate to us as a king, then we would just be his subjects. He doesn't want to merely relate to us as a philosopher, then all we would do is learn. He doesn't want to relate to us primarily as a shepherd, then we would just be his sheep. What he wants us to do is he wants us to relate to him in such a way that we love him. I mean, just think about it. I mean, think about the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is to have no other gods before me. Really what the commandment's all about is that what God wants above all else is your worship, your affection, your love to be fixed on him first and foremost. And when Jesus comes along, the Pharisees come to him and they say, hey, which of the 613 commandments is the most important? You know, Jesus responds. He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. So it's a lot, lot like the first commandment, isn't it? It's trying to communicate that God's after our affection. He's after our, our attention. He's after our love. And you might say, now, I'm, I'm, good, with, I'm good with Jesus. I'm a Christian. I'm not a Buddhist or uh, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Muslim. I'm, I'm not a Jewish. That's, that's not me. I, I'm a Christian and I'm here, aren't I? I'm good with Jesus. Well, I, that's fine. But I'm afraid that we like Jesus like we like our friends. See, you can have a lot of friends. And in many ways, your friends aren't competing with one another. They're good with you having other friends. But God wants your full commitment. I mean, think about a husband. Think about a husband who has a lover outside of his wife that's captured his heart, but then he's got his wife, and his wife has all the money, has his name, has his children. The wife has all the tangible things, but the lover has the man's heart. See, brother and sister, maybe you've done the same with God. You believe, you're baptized, you give some of your money. See, you're friendly with God, but something else has your heart, and that's adultery, and that makes me and you a prostitute. But there's good news in our text, verses one to five. Do you see what happens to the prostitute? Do you see what happens to prostitution? Do you see what happens to spiritual adultery in verses one to five? It's said in the context of a whole bunch of hallelujahs because they're the celebration that the prostitute will be no more. Doesn't that sound glorious? I mean, I know the return of Christ usually incites fear in many of us, but it should be a consolation because it's trying to tell us that there be no longer will there be any more half-hearted love for God. We'll be fully committed to him in all the ways that we wish we could be. And how does that happen? How does the prostitution leave the scene? You see it in verse, verses 6 to 10. You see it with the last two images. You see it with the lamb and the bride. Now, this is an odd combination, the lamb and the bride, isn't it? You have this marriage ceremony taking place in verse 7, but there's no bridegroom. 
It's the lamb. The lamb is standing for Jesus. And Jesus here isn't called what he's called later in chapter 19. He's not called like we saw a couple weeks ago, word of God. He's not called Lord of Lords or King of Kings. He's, 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 he's not called faithful and true. He's called a lamb. Why a lamb? Why a sacrificial lamb? Well, a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, is not random in the Bible. The lambs always symbolize the sacrificial system in the Old Testament where people would offer animals like lambs as their worship. See, essentially those lambs would stand as a substitute for sin. The lambs died so that you wouldn't have to. The lambs incurred the wrath so that you didn't have to. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, He's the fulfillment of this sacrificial system. He's the one who dies so that his people don't have to. That's why John the Baptist, first time he lays his eyes on Jesus, he, he, he says, behold, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Three years after that pronouncement, three years after John the Baptist says this to him, Jesus would actually die on a Roman cross as a substitute for his people's sins, for their spiritual adultery. And it's this lamb that's come to marry you. And this is what God has always been after. God's always been after marriage from the beginning of the Bible to the end. It's just one big marital story. In the first part of Genesis, you have a marriage between a man and a woman. And then in chapter 19, there's only 22 chapters of Revelation. The Revelation is the last book in the Bible. And Revelation 19 and 21 and 22, all these at the very end, you have this marriage supper of the Lamb taking place. So you have the bookends, Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 19, 21 and 22, all talking about marriage. But then you have marriage between God and his people all throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 54, 5, listen to this one. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Isaiah 62, 5, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Hosea 2, 19 and 20, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. 2 Corinthians 11, 2, Paul says, Paul says, For I feel je divine jealousy for you. He's talking to the Corinthian church. And he says, Since I betrothed you to one husband, talking about God, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Ephesians 5, famous marriage passage. Starting with verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. Marriage. All these passages from Isaiah and the prophets, Hosea and the prophets, to Paul in 2 Corinthians and Ephesians 5. It's all throughout the scriptures, marriage between God and his people. And it's because he's inviting you and he's inviting me into this unique, unrepeatable, committed relationship. That's union with him. That we're created to participate in this eternal exchange of love that's found in God by being eternally wed to his son, the lamb, the Christ. So what might 
our relationship with God, this marriage to God, what might, what might it look like for me and you? Well, five things, quickly. Five things. The first one, what might this relationship look like? Well, it looks like it's comprehensive. Marriage to God covers every area of your life. I remember uh, early in our marriage, Jen and I, we got married after I was just one semester into seminary, graduate school for pastors, essentially. And um, I remember, I, I, let's just say I told her I'd be home at 11, and I got home at 11.30, and she's like, where have you been? And I'm like, what do you mean, where have I been? I mean, it's 11.30. I told you I'd be home at 11. She said, we said you'd be home at 11. I said, well, I, it's not like I was doing anything filthy. I just went to the bookstore after class. And I thought, do I really have to tell her everything I'm doing? Yes. It's marriage. Everything's on the table. When you're married, you've got to be completely vulnerable, bodily, domestically, economically, and with your calendar. Why? Because that's what Christ has done for us. Jesus made himself completely vulnerable, which means he's made a comprehensive commitment to us at great cost to himself in order to marry us. And when you see that for what it really is, you respond by being comprehensively committed to him. So marriage to God is comprehensive. It's also permanent. See, what God says to us, he says, I'm with you always. He's never going to leave you no matter what. He's not going to change his mind about you. He's not going to come in one day and say, I just don't love you anymore. Because his love for you is from everlasting to everlasting. So marriage to God is permanent. Marriage to God is legal. Around the world for all time, if you're poor and you marry a rich person, guess what? You become rich. I remember uh, doing premarital counseling a long time ago, and I don't like doing premarital counseling, so if you want me to do your wedding, I'm just going to refer you to a counselor. Um, I mean, we can talk about that later maybe, but um, I remember doing premarital counseling, and this, uh, this young woman comes in, and she said, well, I've got over $100,000 of school debt. And the husband was like, not a big deal. And she was like, what do you mean not a big deal? He said, well, my grandmother died several years ago and left me with some money. And we can pay that off as soon as we get married. She said, I'll never let you do that. And he said, you don't have a choice if we get married. And I'm just sitting there watching this conversation take place. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know if I need to, if you all need premarital counseling. <laughs> but she was grappling with the fact that marriage is legal. See, that's what happens when you marry Jesus. <laughs> you got rich. All of his resources are now yours. So it's comprehensive, it's permanent, it's legal, it's intimate. See, marriage with God means that he wants contact with you. It means that, he, that you can have contact with him, that he's given you these means in which to engage him. Things like fellowship and the word and corporate worship. If you don't engage in these means of having contact with God, you're not going to fall out of the marriage because it's permanent, because it's legal. But it's not going to be very intimate. You won't enjoy it very much the way that he's intended to if you neglect these practices. This relationship with God is intimate. It's also the fifth one is lopsided. 
See, for every relationship we're in, both people have to want to be in it in order for it to work. Both people have to take responsibility. Like the old saying, the old saying goes, it takes two to tango. But not with Jesus. <laughs> See, his commitment to you will always be greater than your commitment to him. It's lopsided. He's committed to you without reservation, without condition, and without any selfish calculation. See, that's what marriage to God is like. And the biggest challenge of your life and of mine is letting God love us this way. The biggest challenge of your life is letting God love you this way. So why don't we? Why don't we experience relationship with God like this? Well, it might be because of shame. See, you know the reality of you. You know you're a mess, so why would God love you? You know you're the prostitute, so why would God want to be with you? You know you're a bride that's got torn dress and a black eye. And that's true. It's also true of the church at large. I frequently have conversations with people who are like, I just I can get in with Jesus, but not the church. See, when the world looks at the church, and I think even when the church looks at the church, they're like, really? God loves those people? See, everybody's a cynic about the church, except for God. God looks right at the church. He looks right at, at you. He sees you for who you really are, and he loves us anyways. That's why shame. Boy, we don't let God love us this way. I think another reason is fear. See, we're afraid to come to the bridegroom. We think if I go to Jesus, he's going to chide me. He's going to condemn me. So we just stay hidden. But brother and sister, if you'll come out, you'll find that Jesus will embrace you, forgive you, and heal you. And when that happens, you'll see that you don't need to hide your faults anymore. You don't need to hide your sins. You don't need to hide your weaknesses in order to be lovable because Christ loves you anyways. So do you see this picture? <laughs> this picture of this wedding feast where you've been invited to it, not as the guest, but as the bride. And what Jesus is going to do, he's going to continue to offer and extend this invitation to you, not because he feels sorry for you, not because he's obligated, not because you're worthwhile, but because he's fixated on loving you unconditionally as his bride. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you love us like this. Lord, that your love for us is lopsided, and that you want intimacy with us, Lord, that, uh, that this is legal, that is permanent, that is comprehensive. And Lord, I pray that we would enjoy you in this way. Lord, that we would be more than just uh, something objective, something we just say we believe, something that we just say is a part of our life, Lord, that we're just friends with you. But Lord, I, I pray that uh, you would woo us once again, Lord, that you would enliven our hearts. We pray these things in your name. Amen.